You are listening to KZYX Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ Williston Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. We also stream live at kzyx.org. Altogether, we are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting listener-supported community radio. We're also found on Facebook, and we are broadcasting from the Mendocino Coast Redwood uh, Senior Center in Fort Bragg, California. Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. Do we really want to live in such stressful times? Between Trump and his bluster and threats, the upcoming election, the COVID-19 pandemic, and all the incompetent and unqualified members of the administration, what else can there be? How about Mr. Evil? Today's guest is Gene Guerrero, author of Hatemonger, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and the White Nationalist Agenda. Gene Guerrero is an Emmy-winning investigative border reporter for KPBS in San Diego and the author of Crux, a cross-border memoir, which won the Penn Fusion Emerging Writers Prize. She began her career at the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones Newswires as a correspondent in Mexico City. I am pleased to welcome Jean Guerrero to Politics, a Love Story. Hi, Jean. Hey, Bob. It's great to be here. Well, it's really nice to have you in one sense. I mean, uh, you seem like a wonderful person, but your subject matter made me so angry and frustrated I couldn't read through. I had to get up and walk around a bit because... It just incensed me. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. Writing about Stephen Miller was an intense experience. I'll put it that way. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, he seems to be evil personified. Can you please tell us where he came from? Yeah, so Stephen Miller grew up in Santa Monica, California, so a coastal, largely progressive a city in Southern California. Uh, he was he was born in 1985, but he he grew up in the 90s, which is around the same time that I grew up in Southern California because we're we're about the same age. I'm a couple years younger, and to me, like I I first became fascinated with Stephen Miller's story because I wanted to know how does a Jewish American descendant of refugees end up crafting Trump's harshest rhetoric and policies targeting people fleeing violence and persecution, people like his grandparents, his, his great-grandparents. Um, and, and knowing where he was from, this very liberal town, uh, you know, a lot of, he went to a very diverse public high school that really celebrated, um, you know, uh, multiculturalism and diversity with celebrations like Cinco de Mayo and Dia de los Muertos, I, I really wanted to wrap my head around how does that person come to represent sort of the most anti-immigrant uh, mentality that, that we've seen, um, you know, in, in our generation. But he goes beyond just immigrants, doesn't he? Uh, he really doesn't yeah. like uh, people of color, uh, anybody, really. I mean, <laughs> it seems very odd, yes. Yeah, ever since he was a teenager, he's really focused his attacks on people of color. He he has been 
mostly focused on people with Latin American roots, but that's definitely not been his only target. When you when you look at you know what the kind of rhetoric that we're seeing out of the Trump administration right now, with a lot of vilification of Black Lives Matter and just all Democrats as sort of being painted, you know, anti-racist, anti-racist protesters being painted as an existential threat. It really boils down to Stephen Miller and his hostility, not only towards, uh, you know, certain people of color, but also any of their allies. So the entire Democratic Party is being demonized by Trump uh, in large part because of the way that, you know, what Miller is pushing him to do and, and to really stoke divisions in America between people on the right and people on the left. But it's all it's it's all about demonization. And, and it first started out with demonizing, you know, Latin American students in his high school where he used to go around telling his Mexican classmates to speak English and, you know, used to go to hit uh, school board meetings to argue against measures to increase racial equity. Um, and, you know, it, people were very surprised that someone so young could have so much passion about this issue. Like no one really understood it. Um, but yeah, over time it just, it ends up encompassing a, a greater and greater, um, you know, swath of, of, of Americans, mostly people of color. Um, you know, the Muslim ban that we saw under President Trump, the very one of the very first executive orders that he issues, that was Stephen Miller. Um, you know, the, the family separation policy where they were tearing apart hundreds of children from their parents at the border, mostly asylum seekers, uh, people who came here fleeing violence in their home countries. This this is all Stephen Miller, um, you know, pushing pushing his agenda, which really focuses on on people of color. And in my book, I try to show like how he became so obsessed with this issue and and why. Like, what is what are his motivating influences, and 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 why is he so obsessed with this issue of of of, of people of color? Yeah, and I mentioned that. Um, Although it's a wonderful book, you did a terrific job, uh, it incensed me in parts to the point where I couldn't read any longer without getting up and walking around. There have been a number of books recently, but this one is the most. Uh, it was just like the, if fire could come out of my ears, it would have. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, I mean, from a very young age, he was doing really things that are, that many people considered to be offensive. Um, you know, break, breaking up with one of his friends because of his Mexican heritage, and you know, running for student government in high school on the platform that students shouldn't have to pick up after themselves because that's what custodians are for. And it just so happens that there's like you know just a handful of custodians, and they're all people of color. But yeah, I mean, Stephen Miller, he is. What, what's crazy is that he, he he for so long he was seen as this pariah, like this fringe figure, and people kind of like they were very offended by him, but they just sort of rolled their eyes and, and dismissed him. They thought his ideas were so extreme that he could never actually come to impact anybody anybody in a serious way. Um, and this really is the story of how someone goes from being so dismissible to 
suddenly, uh, you know, being behind a lot of damage done to uh, many communities of color um, in, across the United States and, and people who are coming here. So he wasn't born, he didn't come out of his mother's uterus, an overt <laughs> racist. So who were some of his early influencers? That's a great question. So I, I really see Stephen Miller as a case study in radicalization. It is what happens when someone, you know, is exposed to a very hardcore ideology at a vulnerable time in his life and ends up becoming consumed and supplanted by it. Um, so Stephen Miller, when he was a teenager, uh, he met this man named David Horowitz, who is an ex-Marxist uh, who became a conservative writer, um, who he, he basically, uh, you know, he teaches young conservatives that the political, the entire political left of the United States poses a literal existential threat to America because of their allyship with Muslims and other people who always happen to be brown or black people. And because David Horowitz used to be on, you know, a radical leftist, he, he knows how to use the language of the of like the civil rights movement against it so he calls people of color and you know their liberal allies racists and oppressors and he paints white men as as victims of discrimination because of their skin color he's been identified as an anti-muslim and anti-immigrant extremist by the southern poverty law center Although he insists that he's not a white nationalist, that he sees himself as colorblind, but this is this is a man who who believes that everything that we hold dear as Americans uh, we owe to white men. He says that white men created uh, all of the ideals that we hold dear, like freedom and equality. Um, you know, which is a historical bit because it ignores the central role that people of color played during the civil rights movement and throughout the, America's history in making, you know, in realizing these once false ideals written in our founding documents. What were his parents like? Yeah, so so Miller kind of warms up to Horowitz because his parents, his, I, I, I don't, you know, I wasn't able to find out too much about his mother, but his father, it, he has been just described to me as very much like Donald Trump. He was a real estate investor who, as Miller was growing up, he was tangled up in numerous legal disputes and bankruptcies. And uh, he, uh, um, it, court documents describe him as a, quote, masterpiece of manipulation and, um, and, uh, sorry, one second. Um, uh, the court documents describe him as a masterpiece of evasion and manipulation. And, you know, a lot of pe people that I spoke to in Miller's family say that Miller was kind of looking for his father's attention. His, his dad was really busy while Miller was growing up with, with these, you know, these legal, legal disputes and bankruptcies. And 
he was very combative. And so Miller starts trying to get his attention by, by expressing, you know, very extreme conservative and contrarian viewpoints at this point in his life. And that's the point when he meets David Horowitz, who becomes sort of a, like a father figure, like a, like a stepfather almost kind of taking Miller under his wing when his father was very, um, you know, involved in these other things. And I'm told that, that Miller was, was just, you know, looking, looking for, for a father figure during this time. And, and that's when Horowitz came and sp spoke at, at Stephen Miller's high school and invited Miller over to his house, uh, you know, to share his life story with him and, and his beliefs. And from that point forward, Stephen Miller became like this acolyte of David Horowitz and uh, intent on on perpetuating his agenda throughout college and later on Capitol Hill. Uh, you know, David Horowitz is a person who got Stephen Miller all of the jobs that he had on Capitol Hill prior to joining the Trump campaign. Um, but it really is a story about, you know, Stephen Miller as a young man going through this period of turmoil in his family um, and, and looking, looking to other places for comfort and, and finding comfort in these very extremist right-wing activists such as David Horowitz. Well, many teenagers listen to music uh, while they're growing up. And you point out in your book that uh, Stephen Miller used to listen to Rush Limbaugh. Yeah. So he, you know, Rush Limbaugh, he wrote this book called The um, the Way Things Ought to Be that Stephen Miller read back then and, and later listed it as one of his most formative books. And, you know, he was listening to Limbaugh, who was broadcasting out of the state capitol uh, and, you know, listening to him rail against multiculturalism and feminazis and basically blaming everything that's wrong in the world on, on everyone other than white men and, and sort of painting white men as the aggrieved parties. And Stephen Miller, despite his Jewish and despite being Jewish and, and despite being the descendant of refugees from Eastern Europe, he identified as a white man. Um, you know, he repeatedly wrote, he, he wrote articles later on talking about how like, yes, Jewish holidays are important to him, but primarily he sees himself as as American. And, and he even points out that Jewish people are a minority in America and therefore, you know, their their culture is, is less important to him than than what he sees as the white male culture that uh, he that he finds most relatable for some reason. And, and this really was him just like listening to Rush Limbaugh as a teenager, reading his writings um, and then, and then finding finding a lot of becoming very interested in in other extreme conservative figures such as David Horowitz, uh, Larry Elder, a, a right wing talk radio host who allowed Stephen Miller to come onto his platform and complain about his high school multiple times. Um, so a lot of a lot of just different like very um, very extreme and very combative. Uh, combative is, is like a, a key word in the life of Stephen Miller. Like he was always drawn to combative figures like his father. Um, 
who who just kind of wanted to get into a fight, uh, you know, according to my interviews with people who who knew his dad. And that's, you know, that's that's Stephen Miller, like really, really wanting to get into a fight. So was he well liked at Santa Monica High? Um, you know, some people I, t- I talked to, <laughs> he, he was, he was seen as very offensive. Like the, the, this was a, an extremely diverse high school and, you know, very, very celebratory of their foreign cultures, um, that, 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 you know, the different students from all over the world and, and people these students, you know, wanted to celebrate those cultures and, and that, that often did happen at the school. And Stephen Miller was really, really against that. So no, like he, he really, I mean, he had friends in high school. He had his, his group of friends, one of, one of whom spoke to me for the book, but, uh, you know, largely he was, he was seen as, as very offensive. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't learn of any cases in, in, of people being, mean or bullying him. I, I heard of cases of students pushing back against the offensive things that he was telling students of color because he would like go around during lunch and just like yell at the immigrant uh, immigrants who were speaking Spanish that they needed to learn English. And like if, if they he, he would tell people to go back to their countries if they didn't want to learn, you know, the way of being of America and it was just very offensive to people and occasionally people would push back. Um, but I didn't hear of any cases of him being, being bullied. And, and I think that's important to highlight because this isn't like, I think it would be inaccurate to paint Stephen Miller as sort of like, you know, the product of, of, of bullying and, and him just becoming very extreme because he was, he was ridiculed throughout his life. I, I think, a lot of people try to, um, you know, be, be kind and, and speak to him in, you know, calm, uh, calm, calm ways. And, and, but, but yeah, I mean, for the most part, he really was seen as offensive in high school. But he was pretty bright and he did get into Duke University, one of the top schools in the country at the time. Uh, yeah. did that uh, behavior of his continue at Duke? Yes. So the, one of the first things he did at Duke University is he started a chapter of Horowitz of David Horowitz's um, Students for Academic Freedom group, and basically like dedicated his time through the chapter to um, to like uh, attacking um, you know Muslims. So he, he came to lead David Horowitz's Terrorism Awareness Project, which is basically this, this project that conflates all Muslims and all Arabs with terrorists and claims that the goal of, of Muslims is the eradication uh, of the Jews. And it's just, it's very, it was, a, it was a very hostile project. And Stephen Miller was leading it throughout his time at Duke University with, Horowitz's guidance and he also managed this is when this is when Stephen Miller starts to really start to gain national attention um because you know he he used David Horowitz's uh advice in order to get more and more media attention so David Horowitz 
uses arguments about the importance of diversity in order to elevate voices like Stephen Miller's. So Stephen Miller was able to get a column at the college newspaper where he was constantly, you know, writing about how racism is a myth, how there is no such thing as systemic racism against people of color anymore, uh, saying that multiculturalism is a danger to society and, you know, just just a lot of the beliefs that he'd been expressing in high school, but like on in this regular column in the campus newspaper. And eventually he starts to get national attention for his project with Horowitz, the Terrorism Awareness Project. He goes on Fox to talk about his thwarted efforts to publish advertisements in in colleges, in college newspapers across the United States. Um, he, he was trying to publish advertisements with his interpretation of jihad, which, I mean, he was saying that jihad is, is meant, it, 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 it's, it, the goal is the destruction of, you know, Western civilization, um, and, and that all Muslims see it that way. But in reality, of course, jihad, jihad is, is seen as a struggle by most Muslims as a struggle to be a good Muslim, and only extremists see it as a call to holy war. war. Let but, me... You know, yeah. Let me take this opportunity to reintroduce you. You're listening to Politics, A Love Story. Our guest today is Gene Guerrero, author of Hatemonger, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and the White Nationalist Agenda. Okay. So um, when while Miller was at uh, Duke, it, there was also that big lacrosse team scandal. Mm-hmm. Did he have yeah. much to do with that? Yeah. So he, he gets involved— so, the scandal that you're talking about is, you know, several of the Duke lacrosse players were accused by a black stripper of, of raping her. And Stephen Miller gets involved commenting on this right, right around the time that his school, you know, a lot of people in his school were, were calling for, um, for, for, for a proper investigation to be done. And, and, um, and Stephen Miller was, was saying that these men were just, that the that the allegations against these men were completely bogus and that they were that they were only being taken seriously because because the victim because the alleged victim was black and because the alleged uh, perp- perpetrators were white. So again, using the language of the civil rights movement against like in, in completely inverting the arguments of the civil rights movement um, and. And so he's he 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 makes this the subject of his column. He goes on Fox News to talk about this as well, and and to say that like we need to we need to defend these men and 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 uh, see them as innocent until proven guilty, and uh, but not really entertaining the possibility that they might be guilty at all. And it turns out that that um, the charges against these players get dismissed after a time. And Stephen Miller sees this as evidence that he was right all along and he sort of doubles down and becomes even more intense in his beliefs that racism is that racism against people of color is a completely made up concept just like David Horowitz told him when he was a when he was a teenager and that he needs to fight against anyone who dares to say that that there exists discrimination in in our society against people of color and the only racism that I think Stephen Miller believes in, although um, 
he hasn't said this before is is racism against white people and and the reason i believe he he believes that's a real racism is is because his mentor horowitz has repeatedly said that anti-white racism is the most dangerous problem in america today and again like horowitz created Stephen Miller, set him up career-wise and shaped his ideology. And so I, I, I really truly believe that the, one of the reasons that Stephen Miller, um, you know, the, the, one of the reasons the Trump administration is refusing to express any solidarity with the anti-racism protests that we've been seeing this summer is, is because, is because, you know, Stephen Miller, his senior advisor, his most trusted advisor is 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 whispering in his ear that that like they're, they're the only racism in our society these days is racism against white people um, like Trump. And uh, while he was uh, still at Duke, he also tried to prevent a pro uh, pro Palestinian state speaker from coming to Duke. Yeah, well, he so he prote- he protested the entire Pal- Palestine Solidarity Movement conference and. This is tied to his 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 collaboration with David Horowitz as well. David Horowitz has repeatedly said that Palestinians do not have a right to a national identity. At one point, he tweeted out, there is no Palestine. There are no Palestinians. So this very intense anti-Palestine attitude, uh, Stephen Miller adopted it right when he started in college. And he he, he campaigned against Duke University holding this conference. He, you know, he, he met with the president of the university and said, how dare you do this? You need to cancel this at once or else I'm going to tell, you know, I'm going to write articles on conservative websites and I'm going to tell people to stop supporting Duke University because Duke University is, he said, he said that the university was prostituting the campus to terror. So again, conflating well, in this case, conflating the entire, you know, Palestinian people with terrorists. And yeah, so he, he, it's just, he was, he's very, any cause that David Horowitz took up became Stephen Miller's cause. And that's why, that's why I truly see Stephen Miller as, as a person who was indoctrinated in an extreme, um, extreme and and dangerous view at a, at a young age. So one of his tactics is to delegitimize anyone who wants to speak against what he's saying. Uh, therefore, you take away their power by not even acknowledging that they have an argument at all. There is no racism. Uh, there is no Palestine. There are no Palestinians. Um, why? It's kind of hard to, to uh, debate him, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's sort of like gaslighting. It's Gaslighting is the way that it was described to me by multiple people who tried to have conversations with Stephen Miller. Um, like he just he he. It's funny because he he uses the argument of intellectual diversity to elevate himself and his own ideas, but then tries to suppress the speech of other people. And and so so basically, like you know, defending hate speech by appealing to intellectual diversity, and then anyone who disagrees with hate speech must be silenced. So it's, it's a completely um, contradictory and nonsensical, illogical uh, viewpoint, but that, that is something that he, 
has been doing his whole life and, and something that he learned from, from David Horowitz. So after uh, he uh, left school, uh, he went to work for Senator Jeff Sessions. And uh, while he was there, uh, in your book, you uh, quoted somebody who said that uh, they saw him as, uh, this is Stephen Miller, as vindictive and an aggressive, nasty street fighter. Do you have any examples of those? Yeah, so, I mean, one of, one of Stephen Miller's best friends was telling me that when, he, when Stephen Miller was growing up, he was very, very obsessed with mobster movies. Um, one of his favorites was the, the movie um, Casino with Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro plays this casino executive and uh, dresses up in these like really brightly colored eccentric suits. Um, and, and he's, and he plays, he plays a mobster and Stephen Miller would throughout his life, uh, he would go to Las Vegas dressed up as this character in this mobster <laughs> movie. Um, so he was just very, uh, just into this idea of, um, can I'm sorry, can you hear that, that in the background? What, what? Do you hear something? Okay, no, no, nothing. I thought I thought that you could hear this loud noise outside, but uh, never mind. Um, but yeah, so so Stephen Miller, he, he was he was very into mobsters, and and in on Capitol Hill, that was like very clear to people. And the clearest example that I can share with you is is the way that he um, he approached sinking this historic bipartisan immigration reform bill that was being discussed. In, in Congress in 2013 and 2014, um, he, he really, um, he started, you know, he would leak documents to the right-wing blog Breitbart, um, just like with, with negative talking points about any of the Republican senators, um, or, or at least, I, I know of at least one case in which he, he, he targeted one Republican senator uh, who was supporting this immigration reform bill and painting them as a, um, you know, a, an elite part of a part of a donor class seeking to decimate the United States with um, endless uh, cheap labor through the form of mass migration, which was, you know, completely ignores the whole point of what the bill was trying to do. Like the bill in part was going to be fortifying the border uh, with unprecedented amounts of bar barriers built and new technology for border patrol. And they were also going to be providing um, status for um, a number of, of people who, who are, were in the United States, but requiring, requiring them to pay fees in, in order to get this status. So it really was a compromise between Democrats and Republicans to try to finally do something about immigration. And, um, and Stephen Miller, you know, targets them as, as, as people, targets the Republicans as wanting to, to decimate this country with endless cheap labor, which ignores the fact that legalizing part of this workforce uh, legitimizes it and therefore requires a fair, a more fair wage. Um, and, and so he, so he was, he was just constantly leaking false talking points to right wing media, mostly Breitbart, but also he developed relationships with Ann Coulter and other, you know, Tucker Carlson. He, he, he was, he's throughout his life, Stephen Miller has been really good at networking and that's how he's, 
that's part of how he's been able to have such an outsized impact. So the people he was attacking, the Republicans, were part of the Gang of Eight who were trying to work together to get something done, were they not? Exactly. And, you know, in 2013, after the Republican Party lost, um, they they decided that they had to remake themselves, that the Republican Party had to start appealing to a more diverse range of Americans and, and really trying to reach out to people of color. And this was in their autopsy report. And Stephen Miller thought that was outrageous and crazy. He, he thought that the Republican Party should go in the complete opposite direction and appeal mostly to, um, to white American voters. Um, he had this dinner in early 2013 with, um, I can't remember if it was 2013 or 2014, but he had a dinner with Steve Bannon and Jeff Sessions where they, they were discussing this autopsy report and and also comparing it to the analysis of Sean Trendy at um, Real Clear Politics, who found that, th- that there were a large number of missing white voters in the 2012 election. I think I said 13 earlier. I meant no, well, the election was in, in 2012. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry about that. No, it's okay. Um, <laughs> and... Yeah. So, um, and, and they were, they decided that they were going to really double down on trying to appeal to white voters. And, and one of the ways they did this was by using a strategy that was documented in a strategy paper that I obtained from David Horowitz. David Horowitz wrote a strategy paper saying that the Republican party needed to really organize around demonization, Hmm. demonizing liberals demonizing, using fear. Um, He explicitly mentions the importance of appealing to voters, um, the the political utility of of hostile emotions. And he he specifically references that fear is a much more powerful weapon than than hope. And that Obama had, had used hope to win. And that the, the Republicans needed to use fear if they wanted to win again. Well, then, um, and so, and so, yeah, it's, they, they just completely go in an opposite direction. And then um, at some point in the not too distant future from the point that you're bringing up, he started ingratiating himself with uh, uh, Jared and Ivanka. Exactly. Um, Stephen Miller understood the importance of being diplomatic in, in the White House he, unlike Steve Bannon, who is, you know, obsessed with media attention and really skilled at self-mythologizing, Steve, Stephen Miller has always been very careful to cast himself as a devoted vehicle for Trump's agenda. And one of the ways that he does this is by being friendly with Jared Kushner and Ivanka, because he knows that for Trump, uh, you know, family is is you know, loyalty with his family is, is an important thing. And so, um, that's one of the, that's one of the ways that Stephen Miller ends up being able to stick around in the white house far longer than any of these other stalwarts like Bannon or Jeff Sessions, his former boss, uh, who was the attorney general for a little while. Well, I guess, uh, (laughs) I, I think that you pointed this out that, uh, Trump thinks of him as a son. And I guess, he would be yeah. the smarter of his uh, sons if that were the case. 
I think I think Trump really, really trusts Stephen Miller's instincts. And in part, that is because Stephen Miller is really strategic, first of all, but also sec secondly, very hardworking, very disciplined in a way that few other people in the White House are. And thirdly, um, Stephen Miller encourages Trump's harshest and I believe most ingrained impulses. And Trump loves that. Trump does not like it when people push him towards a more moderate path, because in the past, uh, when he's listened to aides like Jared Kushner and tried to, you know, take a middle road, he ends up being pummeled and criticized by his base and it's uh, and they criticize him as weak which is what Trump hates most to be seen as weak and 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 Miller really pushes him in like the the harshest direction consistently and Trump loves that one of the uh, the things that i see is that uh, in one area Stephen Miller is not very disciplined when he wants to write a new policy for Trump to employ he doesn't always follow the regulations, and that, therefore, many of the cases that have been brought to court were brought because they didn't follow the procedures necessary to change a regulation. That's a very bad weakness on Stephen Miller's part. Well, it's a weakness depending on whose perspective, because I don't believe that Stephen Miller necessarily cares about the fact that these issues are getting um, stopped in the courts because for him it's just another opportunity to vilify what he calls uh, left-wing activist judges and and again rile up his base and for him it's all about the political win as well as restricting immigration into this country which he which is a very uh, he has a huge obsession with that but he but you're right like he he has repeatedly written things and he writes them quickly without attention to real detail. I mean, this guy's not a lawyer. He, he he didn't have any real policy experience prior to working for Trump. He was a public relations flack who became Trump's senior policy advisor. Um, but, uh, but yeah, throughout his time in the White House, Stephen Miller has disregarded standard operating procedure and bypassed regular hierarchies to just enact his his will when it comes to immigration and other and other topics. And one of the best examples sort of that exemplifies this um, is very early on in the White House before the inauguration, Obama's former Homeland Security advi advisor, Lisa Monaco, held this disaster exercise for the Trump transition team to try to uh, get them um, to, to know how to respond to deadly disasters. And one of the disasters that she covered was a pandemic. And Stephen Miller's predecessor, Cecilia Munoz, says she was sitting right next to Stephen Miller during this exercise. And she noticed that he was just kind of pecking away at his phone, distracted, not really paying attention. And she started to really worry because as much as she didn't like the Trump administration and what it represented, she wanted officials to know what to do in the event of a deadly crisis in the United States. So she turns to Stephen Miller and she asks him, uh, is there anything I can help you with? Like anything that you're curious about? And he immediately responds, yes, I want to know. And I'm paraphrasing, but he says, I want to know how to make sure I'm 
running the show with respect to immigration without the interference of the National Security Council. So he was essentially asking how to disregard the input of national security experts. And Cecilia Munoz said, you can't do that. I mean, collaboration and consultation with people with different expertise is critical for saving American lives during crises. And Stephen Miller, in response, just chuckled. And this is how he approached his position in the White House throughout his time. It is why you see the Department of Homeland Security currently, most of its leading positions are vacant or held by people in acting capacity because everyone who has disagreed with Miller's agenda has been uh, removed. And and they, they keep people in acting capacity because it's easier for Trump and Miller to control them that way. This is the department that is in charge of protecting Americans from a range of homeland security threats from cyber warfare to terrorism um, to pandemics. And it, it has become narrowly focused on uh, limiting legal immigration into this country, targeting asylum seekers, targeting refugees, and now also focused on targeting American citizens who uh, disagree with Trump or who protest police brutality in cities that are run by Democrats. Let me reintroduce you. You're, you're listening to Politics, A Love Story. Our guest today is Jean Guerrero, and she has written a wonderful book called Hate Monger. Well, wonderful in the f- sense that we, she gives us a lot of information, but the subject matter is difficult because it's about Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and the white nationalist agenda. I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. Well, then he, uh, after the election, and one of the things he did to, ing- uh, to uh, come to the attention of Trump is he got the, the endorsement of the Border Patrol Union, and that mm-hmm. was the first time ever that they endorsed a presidential candidate. How did he do that? Yeah, that was huge. I mean, a lot of people didn't really take Trump seriously, even immigration hardliners. When he would talk about the wall, people just kind of rolled their eyes because they knew that there were hundreds of had hundreds of miles of border barriers already on the border that were not um, that were simply rerouting immigration into other areas and not doing anything about actually reducing immigration numbers. So Stephen Miller, he was familiar with what the hardliners actually wanted, and he was he was friends with, uh, uh, or at least he was familiar with the union leaders, the border patrol union leaders from his time working for for Sessions, for for Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions back when he was derailing uh, the Gang of Eight immigration reform bill. Um, So he reaches out to the National Border Patrol Council, the union president, and and tells him that if they they endorse Trump, that they are, that he, that the the union is going to have a direct line to the White House and a, a regular um, ability to shape policy. And what the Border Patrol Union really wanted was to decrease uh, family immigration because in 2014, uh, you saw a, a surge of Central American minors fleeing the, the crisis of violence in, in Central America. And this had really changed Border Patrol agents' jobs. They had um, you know, in, instead of like being able to continue their perceived role as vanguards and warriors at the border, they were having to, they were, they were 
overseeing families that were arriving and they and they really didn't like that because it messed with their like you know cowboy self perceptions um and so they they decided to endorse Trump and for Trump this was critical because suddenly he had real border security cre- credentials as a result of Miller and that really cemented Miller's status as a key player on the Trump team but unfortunately uh the Border Patrol was disappointed, as had many other people, organizations, and uh, industries that where Trump had made promises and didn't follow through. Because uh, you point that out in your book, that the head of the union uh, was severely disappointed in, uh, in Trump and in Miller. Well, well, it's funny. Actually, the ICE, because there's two different unions that Miller got to endorse Trump. First, it was the Border Patrol Union, and then it was ICE, which is Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And they're focused on uh, on targeting people in the interior of the country. And they were very upset because uh, apparently they had told Stephen Miller that they wanted every single ICE agent to be able to, to carry around tasers when detaining people in neighborhoods. Um, and uh, they never they never got that. And, and so they, the, the ICE union leader was very, very upset and, and wrote an angry letter to an angry open letter to Trump, citing his conversations with Miller and, and saying that he felt really let down. Well, it, one of the other things, uh, and I think we're going to spend a little bit of time on the child separation policy that uh, Stephen Miller wrote He wrote the separation policy that may have psychologically impaired thousands of children's lives. He didn't care, did he? No, no, he he really didn't care. Um, You know, Bob, this is actually how I got interested in Stephen Miller's story, because I was covering family separations at the busiest border crossing in the country in San Diego, Tijuana, for months before they even announced the zero tolerance policy. They had really ramped up separations systematically. And I talked to, you know, an El- a father from El Salvador whose one-year-old was taken away from him and, and he was separated from him for eight months. And this was a man who had presented legally at a port of entry to request asylum. He had no criminal record, had broken no laws and was locked up for eight months without his baby. And so I was listening to the White House talk about how this family separation policy was about law and order, that they were only targeting people who broke the law. But I was there on the front lines reporting, and I I knew that that wasn't the case, that they were going after people who had broken no laws as well. And so that made me ask myself, if this isn't about law and order, then what is it about? And that's what led me to Stephen Miller, who was crafting these policies and trying to figure out what was really motivating him. And at the end of the day, I began to connect the dots, uh, you know, as I show in the book, between these performatively cruel policies that Miller was pushing and his belief that that immigrants, that non-white immigrants pose an existential threat to America. And this, this is an idea that's rooted in um, cultural displacement fears and and white displacement fears. If you look at the kind of things Stephen Miller was reading, he was into white supremacist literature and white nationalist literature, in particular this one book called The Camp of the Saints, 
which depicts the destruction of the white world by um, brown refugees described in really horribly degrading terms like beasts and monsters and teeming ants and centipedes and things like that. And the, the, they are depicted as destroying the white world simply by arriving because according to the white supremacist author of this book, brown and black people do, do they, they pose a threat to civilization period. They don't know how to assimilate. And this is the kind of literature that book, Stephen Miller actually promoted it through Breitbart in 2015. He urged writers there to uh, write an article about it, pointing out paral alleged parallels between the book and real life. And, you know, it started to become really clear to me, like Stephen Miller has been um, drafting immigration policy that really targets people of color because he believes um, for some reason that they that they pose an existential threat to to Western civilization. And, and it goes and, and he he draws immigration policy directly from groups that were created by a eugenicist named John Tanton, who believed in race-based pseudoscience and population control for non-white people. Uh, he creates these think tanks to try to make white nationalist policy goals palatable to the mainstream. And what Stephen Miller does is he takes these white nationalist policy goals and he launders them through the language of heritage, through the language of economics, and through the language of national security. And that ultimately is the reason that he is, he is, he is doing things like, you know, pushing the separation of families who have broken no laws. So Jean, let me ask you, there are two things here that I'm going to read. One is the fact that no or few records were kept about which children belonged to which deported parents. And the second is, the intention of the Trump administration was for the children to be irretrievable in enough cases to frighten people. As you point out, cruelty for cruelty's sake, for the performance of cruelty. What did you think when you found all these things out? Yeah, you know, I, I have always shied away from using labels to describe people. I feel like labels can do a lot of, I feel like labels are reductive and they can do a lot of harm. Um, but, but what you just described for me speaks to my decision to call the book hate monger, which is a very, uh, you know, concrete label to describe Stephen Miller. Um, you know, I, I realized that I, I, as a journalist cannot say what is in Stephen Miller's heart. I cannot say what is in Stephen Miller's head. But I do, but what I can tell you is that from the documents that I've scrutinized and the dots that I connect in my book, Stephen Miller is fluent in the language of hate. Like he speaks hate and he communicates directly with people who hate. H hate is the language that he is fluent in. Um, and, and it's the language, you know, it's the emotion that he needs to appeal to um, in order to rally people around performatively cruel policies like the Muslim ban, like the family separations, like 
slashing refugee admissions to a historic low, like systematically uh, uh, denying entry to anyone fleeing violence at the U.S.-Mexico border. He, he needs hate in order to get people to look at these things and to cheer them on, which is what you see when you visit the white supremacist websites that Miller used to promote. Um, he you look at the comment web on the comment sections and, and people are, are really excited about the family separations. They're, they're excited that there's this cruelty happening towards Brown people. And, and to me that, that just makes it completely, you know, obvious that, that, that Stephen Miller is pur purposely um, inciting, inciting that hatred in order to rally people around these policies. And he's found people to carry out some of these policies in the most despicable way. One of the things you point out is that the Trump administration said, and I quote, that children don't need soap or other toiletries. Uh, this is like Germany in the 30s. Yeah, one of the, so the, the father that I spoke with who was from El Salvador his baby, when the baby was, was returned from this shelter where the baby had been kept, Mateo is his name, um, he, he was covered in lice. He was covered in grime. He, and this, this was a baby who had been in, in the custody of, of U.S. officials. And this is just one of hundreds of cases of, of children being ab abused in this way um, in America as, as a direct result of Stephen Miller's uh, pushing this this policy through in in the White House. Yeah, one other thing that he's been pushing for is the uh, end of birthright citizenship in the U.S. He called it, frankly, ridiculous. What's behind that? That's a great question. I'm, I'm glad you asked it because um, he, he so far he has almost verbatim been able to implement policies that are that were recommended by the Federation for American Immigration Reform, which is one of the John Tanton eugenicist uh, propped up think tanks. And the only policy that he hasn't been able to push through is yet is birthright is canceling birthright citizenship with which is guaranteed in our constitution. And and he 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 doesn't he he wants and I, I imagine that in the coming months uh, the, this is a subject that is going to be brought up in the Trump administration because it's one of the few goals that they still haven't really pushed through and if it doesn't come up and Trump wins again in November I I definitely think it's going to be a focus of the administration trying to remove this fundamental right of people who are born in this country to be considered American citizens. Well, wouldn't you need um, a constitutional amendment uh, or at least both houses of Congress to agree? And it certainly doesn't look likely that the Democrats are going to be able uh, not to prevail in the House, whether they take over the Senate, that's something else. And Trump's position right now looks very shaky. So uh, I guess they're going to try lots of things before they leave. That's very true, Bob. Um, it, it doesn't seem like something that they would be able to pre prevail on. Um, but at the same time, you know, they've they've currently they are openly defying the Supreme. They've been openly defying the Supreme Court on its decision to maintain the Obama era program for people who were brought to the U.S. as children known as DACA. 
you know, a federal judge ordered that DHS start processing applications on DACA again, and DHS has refused to do that. So the Trump administration is increasingly moving in an authoritarian direction. Um, and, and this has this, you know, this raises questions about what, what they might be able to do down the line. Uh, and, and a lot of it comes down to the influence that Stephen Miller is having over Trump and, and really telling him what he thinks will appeal to his most racist base. We're coming near the end. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes left. Is there anything you would like to leave us with? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it is so important for Americans to understand the story of Stephen Miller Regardless of whether you care about immigration or not, Stephen Miller is having an impact on your life. He, there is a division machine in the White House right now, and that machine is in Stephen Miller's office. This isn't just about immigration. It is about pitting Americans, Republican or Democrat, against each other because he believes and has been taught that this type of conflict is politically beneficial. It makes for good television and it makes for good ratings, which is the language of Trump. And, it, you know, Stephen Miller gets Trump physically, or emotionally, psychologically and spiritually. And he he he, he really he, he's pushing the polarization that we are living in America today. And if you want to understand the period of polarization that we are living, you need to understand the story of Stephen Miller. Yes, but I think that um, Stephen Miller and uh, Trump uh, are starting to lose key components of the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. I think they're finally starting to wake up. And aside from the Lincoln Project, which... Uh, is really attacking him hard and making it uncomfortable for him. Uh, right. This is a difficult time we're all going through. And I have to say, Gene Guerrero, you have done a wonderful thing. Uh, it, it must have been awfully hard in writing this book, in finding out the things that you found out. But I think by uh, uh, publicizing your book, your ideas, and what you found out about Stephen Miller, you're going to help us uh, maybe get through this. I think you've done a terrific thing. I think your book, Hate Monger, uh, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and the White Nationalist Agenda is something that everyone should read. Be scared. Be very scared. Jean Guerrero, thank you so much for coming on Politics, a Love Story. Thank you so much for having me. So you just listened to Jean Guerrero giving us a... a an insight into what's going on in the Trump White House and amongst uh, some of his, uh, his consultants or aides, especially Stephen Miller. Well, we've got some interesting shows coming up. And I just want to say, please stay tuned for Gordon Black and the Wondrous World of Music. It's a terrific show, and I'm ho I hope you're going to listen in. Thank you for listening to me. I really appreciate the audience that I have out there, I find out little bits and pieces every now and again. Thank you.